Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Well, in New York State, there are some politicians and some public health experts who are having an honest and serious discussion about the need if this anti-mask, anti-vax, all this kind of crap continues, the need to make COVID vaccinations mandatory. And as soon as you say that phrase, cue the hysteria from the Republican cultists. Oh my God, they're going to, and, and now they're like, oh, microchips and all. I mean, it's just all this weird stuff that is a complete fantasy that's being peddled on Facebook by and large. And these people are just buying into. I mean, it's mind boggling and as they're running around breathing on people. And even in the Supreme Court, the Republican cultists You know, they said, oh, you know, the founders of our republic and the framers of the Constitution, they'd never go along with closing churches and synagogues or preventing them from holding large super spreader events. They would never do that. Well, actually, they did do that. The capital of the United States from 1790 to 1800 was Philadelphia. In 1793, Philadelphia had a massive yellow fever epidemic. Nobody knew what caused it. They didn't realize it was caused by mosquitoes. They did know, though, that it came in the summer and it left in the fall. And it didn't happen at all throughout the winter and the early spring. So, hey, you know, we can do something about this public health-wise. And they did when this yellow fever epidemic recurred three years later in 1796, another bad mosquito year. Again, they didn't put two and two together. Well, actually, a few did. Dr. Benjamin Rush, a good friend of Jefferson's, actually proposed that the mosquitoes had something to do with it, but, you know, nobody took him seriously. But in any case, that city's government, along with the cooperation of President George Washington, who was presiding over the United States in Philadelphia, and the members of the United States Congress, which included a number of people who had signed or helped write the Constitution of the United States, and a couple of people who had signed the Declaration of Independence, most of them were still alive, Keep in mind, this was 10 years after after the ratification of the Constitution. This was 20 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence. They all said, cool, let's do something about this. And what the city did was a block-by-block quarantine, not just a quarantine, an actual evacuation. They said to people, and it turned out that these were the blocks that, you know, looking back on it, were near swampy areas or large puddles or what, you know, where there were a lot of mosquitoes, right? But in any case, they were able to identify those parts of town that had the worst parts of the outbreak. And they told the people living in those houses, you have to leave town until the fall. Now, that's a hell of a lot more invasive than saying you got to wear a mask. You've got to leave your home. You and your entire family, get out of town. And they enforced it block by block. They, they forced people out of their houses. And did George Washington say, oh my God, this is, this is tyranny? No, he was totally supportive of it. In fact, he left town and went to Mount Vernon in Virginia, near Washington, D.C. The members of Congress, did any of them, is there a single one of them on the record saying, oh my God, this is tyranny. They're forcing people out of their homes in the the nation's capital. Not a one. Not a single senator, not a single member of the House. 
And yet the Supreme Court a week or two ago, three weeks ago now, I guess, said, you know, when Governor Cuomo said that churches and synagogues and presumably mosques too, although I don't think they were having this problem so much with mosques, but particularly some of the right-wing Christian churches and the ultra-Orthodox Jewish congregations were continuing to meet in defiance of the large meeting orders. And Cuomo said, okay, we're going we're, we're gonna to break you up with the police. And this went to the Supreme Court. And the right-wingers on the court, don't know if you've noticed, there are six of them now out of nine. The right-wingers on the court with Amy Covid Barrett right at the front of this thing, said, oh, that's tyranny. The founders and the, you know, we are originalists. We know what the founders thought. We can read their minds. We can channel them. All except Neil Gorsuch. He says, I'm an originalist. I look at the original words of the Constitution and I alone know what they mean. But they all came to the same conclusion, all six of the right-wingers, which was Cuomo can't do that. Founders never would have done that. Public health, putting public health above freedom? Are you kidding? Freedom is more important than public health. They were lying. George Washington not only supported public health measures, he signed the first single-payer health care legislation that provided free hospitalization and medical care to civilians, to sailors. They built a hospital for sailors. And by the way, in Philadelphia, the churches were closed down during the yellow fever epidemic. I'm not sure that all of them were, but the, the ones in the quarantine areas, in the evacuation areas, they were shut down. Nobody said a peep. This is how bizarre the Republican Party has become. The so-called conservative movement. You know, they, the Republicans have fought teaching sex ed in our schools, And so in the developed world, we have the highest rates of sexually transmitted diseases. We have the highest rates of teenage pregnancy. We have the highest rates of unwanted pregnancies in the developed world. The Republicans have been fighting teaching evolution in our schools. We are falling behind other countries right now, left and right, in terms of patents, in terms of scientific innovation. The Republicans have been denying climate change, and the world is on fire. We are the laughing stock of the world, literally, for this. But they're doing it because, hey, you know, you got a couple of fossil fuel billionaires with Charles Koch at the front of the bunch and ExxonMobil leading the leading the charge, saying, you know, well, it's not. I'm not killing the world. And now this latest campaign against public health. I mean, the Republicans' hatred of science has damaged America's standing in the world and destroyed the lives of millions of people. And not just with COVID. Thomas Paine wrote a book called The Age of Reason. He thought we were coming into an age of reason and enlightenment. Today we have the age of the intentional Republican stupidity. And they don't just embrace it for themselves. They're hell-bent on imposing it on every American from school children on up. They've rigged our elections by making it harder to vote. they promoted racial and religious bigotry and violence. They've destroyed our public school systems. They've gutted our unions. They've rewritten our tax code to screw the middle class. I mean, since the election of Ronald Reagan, Republicans have damaged America more in 40 years than if we had been invaded by a foreign country. These Republicans are not patriots. They are traitors to reason, to science, to education, to human rights, to democracy, and now, unbelievably, to public health. They are traitors to humanity itself. And the only way to deal with a death-dealing cult is to end it. It's time to defund the Republican Party. Which raises a really interesting question. How do you do that? This is one of the most mind-boggling things I think I've seen in a long, long time. The 20th Amendment to the Constitution created a committee, a House-Senate Joint Congressional Committee. I mean, literally created it out of thin air. Amendment 20 here. Here we go. Congress may by... Okay, it's, it's too long for me to read and find the specific piece of it. But it's in the 20th, it's in the 20th Amendment. 
The 20th Amendment creates this six-person committee to oversee the inauguration of the new president, to deal with the ceremonial aspects of it and, and many of the practical aspects of it as well. And there are six members of this committee right now. They were, they were appointed long before the election. They are, you know, the power brokers in the United States. The chairman of the committee is Senator Mitch McConnell, a Republican from Kentucky. Members include Representative Roy Blunt from Missouri, Nancy Pelosi, Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota, Steny Hoyer, the House Majority Leader, and Kevin McCarthy, who's the, the House Minority Leader. He's the guy who would become Speaker of the House if the, Demo- if the Republicans took control of the House. That's the six members. And they met this week to plan the inauguration of Joe Biden, the new president. Every single state has certified the election. Every state except Wisconsin got that certification in before the 8th. Every state is supposed to have their electoral results in, you know, submitted to Congress. Here's what we've got so that Congress can say, okay, cool, here's the new president. And this is the committee charged with saying, okay, cool, we have a new president. What are we going to do with it? Where do we go with this? And so this committee gets together and says, okay, it's time for us to, you know, start the process, prepare for the inauguration. I mean, there's that, you know, there's the ceremonies, there's the, I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff associated with it. And Roy Blunt, Republican from Missouri, Mitch McConnell, Senator from Kentucky, and Kevin McCarthy, House Minority Leader, Republican from California, said no. We are voting not to do the job that was defined for us by the 20th Amendment. Not going to do it. Not going to talk about it. Not, it's not going to happen. So we've got now Joe Biden being blocked from having intelligence and access to what's going on in the Defense Department. What the hell are they up to over there? And now you've got McConnell and McCarthy and Blunt saying, and we're not even going to help plan for the, for the inauguration. And these people call themselves patriots? They call themselves Americans? They say they love their country and our form of government? What the hell is wrong with these people? We need to defund the Republican Party. I'll be right back. Welcome back. So how do you defund the Republican Party? And, you know, if you have any suggestions, I'd love to hear them. It seems to me that if we want to undertake the project of defunding the Republican Party, it sounds absurd on its surface, right? Defund a party? But that was the campaign that Ronald Reagan undertook in 1981, was to defund the Democratic Party. In 1981, the Democratic Party was principally funded by the unions. The vast majority of the money that that kept the Democratic Party alive, starting in 1932, or 33 actually, with FDRs being sworn in in March of 33, was from unions. And Reagan, realizing this, said, we're going to defund the Democratic Party. We're going to destroy the unions. If we destroy the unions, the Democratic Party won't have any money. And uh, by God, he was right. I mean, he did it. Right when Reagan came into office, a third of Americans had a good union job. When you know, by the time Clinton came in in '92, 12 years later, it was down to what about 14, 15 percent at the most, and now it's six percent. And the result of that was that Bill Clinton found himself looking around, going, "Okay, I can't, I can't raise money from unions anymore." This was, you know, Bill Clinton and Al Fromm got together in in 1991 and created the DLC specifically to reach out to banks and insurance companies and and white-collar corporations, health insurance companies, hospital groups, and say, hey, you know, the unions aren't here to give us money anymore. Would you like to be our new sugar daddies? You know, and that stood right up until, well, right up until today to a large extent. 
Now, the Democratic Party has moved away from this. The Progressive Caucus, you know, with their insistence that their members raise their money not from corporations and PACs and things like that, but rather from average working people, from voters, is like a really good thing. And it's almost half the Democratic Caucus now. We're moving in the right direction. But there, you know, there's, there's still some of that in the Democratic Party. Out of necessity, there are parts of this country where basically that's the only way you can get elected. This is the legacy of Reagan defunding the Democratic Party, was Clinton's neoliberalism. Doesn't mean Bill Clinton was an evil guy. I mean, this is what was necessary for political survival at the time for Democrats. So how do we defund the Republican Party? Well, the Republican Party has been dependent since the 60s and in a big way since the 80s, almost exclusively on money, from billionaires, multimillionaires, and giant corporations. This is what the Republican Party, among other things, has frankly always been about. It's always been the party of the very wealthy. And unashamedly so, unabashedly so. Although they did, you know, during the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s, they did embrace moderation. Those of you old enough to remember, or those of you young enough to read history books, will know that in 1960. In 1960, no, 1964, in 1964, at the Republican National Convention, Nelson Rockefeller got up and gave a a Republican, later Jerry Ford's vice president, Nelson Rockefeller got up and gave a speech in which he said, essentially, the Republican Party should not embrace extremism. The the Republican Party should not just be the party of billionaires like me, is essentially what Nelson Rockefeller said. He said, we need to be the party of all Americans and we need to embrace moderation. And he was booed off the stage. It's been a few years. It's probably been 10 years since I did a deep dive on that particular day. I've got the audio around here someplace of that speech and I've played it on the air. And so after Nelson Rockefeller got booed off the stage, Barry Goldwater got on the stage and said radicalism or extremism was the word I believe he used in the defense of liberty is no vice and moderation. And I forget the phrase he used, but it was sort of, you know, in the defense of wishy-washiness or words to that effect is no virtue. And the crowd went wild. Yes, extremism. We love extremism. Barry Goldwater for president. And he went from there to the nomination and uh, from there to only winning, what, one or two states in the election. Yeah. So this is the Republican Party. And that was when the Republican Party began to take the turn. They finished that turn in 1980 with the election of Ronald Reagan. And... You know, and and Reagan really did this. I mean, after the show yesterday, I was going through the whole history of PATCO. It took one week. It took actually three days for Ronald Reagan to destroy the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, PATCO. In the first week of August of 1981, his first, it was like his seventh, eighth month in office. And he had been looking for an opportunity to destroy the unions because he knew, I mean, he had been a former union president, right? Reagan had led a strike with the Screen Actors Guild back, back in the 1930s. I forget when it was, but back in the day, might have been the early 40s, uh, whatever, whenever it was. And by the time Reagan was done, by the time George Herbert Walker Bush left office, essentially the end of the Reagan administration in 1992, by that point in time, The number of strikes, compared to the number of strikes that were happening in the United States, and keep in mind, strikes withholding labor is basically the only weapon labor has to get better working conditions and better pay. The number of strikes had declined to 2% of what it was when Reagan was running SAG. 2%. So anyhow, Reagan figured in the 80s that the way to defund the Democratic Party was to kill the unions, which he did. We've gone from a third of America being unionized to 6% right now. So how do we defund the Republican Party? How can Democrats turn the tables? Number one, end red state welfare. 
Kentucky gets $2.41 for every dollar they send to D.C. Make that out. Make that illegal. Say no state can can take more than $1.50 from the federal government per every dollar that they send. And call it welfare reform. Number two, end corporate welfare that gets recycled to Republican politicians, including the $600 billion a year we give fossil fuel billionaires that they then turn into ads for Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue. The trillion dollars a year that we give to big pharma insurance companies like the subsidies for this Medicare Advantage scam that Joe Namath is pitching on TV. Be very careful. Do not sign up for Medicare Advantage. It is a scam. And and support for big ag, these giant agricultural corporations that have wiped out family farms in America. Number three, end corporate monopolies. Break up the big giants that fund the Republican Party from tech to airlines to banking to retail. You know, they they're screwing us. We pay an extra $5,000 per family per year because of monopolies in the United States. Next, bring back Eisenhower's 91% top tax rate. Our economy was strongest during the 30 years from 1950 to 1980, and our top tax rate was 91%. It dropped down to 74% in 1967, but when Reagan came into office, it was 74%. So bring that back, at least the 74%. And with that money, by the way, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and early 80s, we built highways, we built schools, we built hospitals, we put men on the moon. Reagan cut that to 25%. Our infrastructure has been crumbling ever since. And the billionaires that that tax cut has produced are pouring money into the GOP. And finally, impose a tax on great wealth. You and I as homeowners, most Americans, actually, you know, a majority of Americans who own their homes, pay an annual wealth tax. It's called a property tax. Billionaires should pay an annual wealth tax, a property tax, on their money bins. Now, that last point of ending the super PACs and ending the billionaire's ability to engage in politics, I think it's really important to remember that everything that I just called for, literally everything that I just called for, well, with the exception of the 1% wealth tax, was actually in place before Reagan came to office. We were strongly enforcing our anti-monopoly laws. We had a top 91% tax rate. It was very, very hard for employers to stop unionization or destroy unions in the workplace. And now, I mean, this is my mind-boggling. Chuck Collins, you know, the the guy who uh, wrote a great book on the importance of an inheritance tax, co-authored it with Bill Gates Sr. Bill Gates is dead. He was on this program several times talking about it. Uh, you know, it's, it's been a decade. The, the book came out about 10 years ago, but he was on this program. And he was pointing out that without a wealth tax, without a, an inheritance tax of some kind, you're just going to see, you know, the, this bloated billionaire class continue to get richer and richer as the struggling working class of America, the, the struggling average worker, gets poorer and poorer. And that's what's been going on for 40 years as we've lived in this era of Reaganomics. So if you look, there are 650 roughly billionaires in the United States. 650 individuals. They have since mid-March, you know, when the pandemic started, when when economic activity got shut down and when, when America just basically, you know, freaked out. These 650 billionaires have made more than $1 trillion. They've increased their wealth by over a trillion dollars. And the vast majority of that will be tax-free to them because of all the loopholes that they've built into our tax code. They buy politicians to give them tax loopholes, and then they make mind-boggling amounts of money I mean, just the three owners of Walmart, Rob, Jim, and Alice Walton, right, have seen their combined personal wealth grow by $48 billion since March. That's like, you know, three, four hundred million dollars a day. I, you know, if I'm, it would be in that neighborhood, it would be several hundred million dollars a day in increased wealth that they've seen. And I think you could build a strong case that a lot of it is specifically because of the pandemic. And it's positioning their company, Walmart, 
to wipe out small competitors, the, the smaller stores, the small hardware stores, the small clothing stores, the small shoe stores, all these independent stores all across America that have had to have their doors closed basically since March. And even if they haven't had to have their doors closed, if they're in South Dakota or something, they're struggling because, you know, half of America has figured out that getting COVID is a quick trip to the morgue or to a lifetime of heart disease and dementia and kidney damage and heart damage and liver damage and, and, uh, and erectile dysfunction. Yes, one of the more common side effects of men getting COVID is that they can no longer get an erection. I mean, honest to God, by the way, tell every man you know, especially the Proud Boys, these guys with the giant guns and the small penises, be sure to tell them. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Morris in Long Beach, California, listening on KPFK. Hey, Morris, what's on your mind today? Hey, Professor, you were talking about Ronald Reagan. You know, before Ronald Reagan was president of the United States, there's something that we did not have that we do have today, and it's called a billionaire class. You know, before, mm -hmm. I, call, I call him Righteous Ronnie, but before Righteous Ronnie became uh, president of the United States, there was one guy. His name was J. Paul Getty. Now, that brother might have had a billion. He was close to it, right? But outside of him, that was it, $200 million, $250 million. That was big-time money. So before yeah. Ronald Reagan became the president, we didn't have this billionaire class. So how do we get to a billionaire class? we got to go back to Dwight Eisenhower. I've talked to you about this before, Professor. It's a broken record. you got to take a look at the distribution of wealth. But what does that mean? you got to look at your tax guidelines. Look at your tax guidelines. That'll tell you everything. When you were talking about uh, the 91% tax thing, I remember that. I owned the business. I remember there was years to get out to the end of the year because you got to midnight, December the 31st, right, to you know, do, do, do what you're going to do. And I got this money. Now, I got to make a choice. Either I'm going to take this eleven, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 and reinvest it back into my business or take 91% of that amount of money and send it to the federal government. Now, which one of them do you think I did? I put it right back into my business. Now, the way the tax guidelines are set up today, there's no incentive to invest, but there is protections to extract. You got it? Yep. And so that, that's where we are. I'm going to tell you something. Everybody lives better than an American today. We're the only country in the world that's considered industrialized, needing roads and stability and all that, that doesn't provide its people with health care protections. And, you know, let's go back to righteous money for a minute. Let me show you how fast things can change. There was a guy, the, the Libertarians, they were to the right. They were to the right of righteous Ronnie, Ronald Reagan. And you never thought they'd make it into the White House, right? Guess who's in the White House now? Mark Meadows is in the White House. Who could have thunk it? So there yep. it is, Professor. We need to look at our distribution yep. of our wealth. You look at our tax guidelines, and that's what's going to save us, okay? All right. Thank you, my brother. I'm with you, Morris. You, Morris always calls with some of the most trenchant, you know, we're just right on spot 
political observations. Chris in Oakland, California. Hey, Chris, what's up? Thanks for watching Free Speech. Hey, Tom. I ran to my calculator when you were talking about the billionaires' profits since early March. So I just divided, I did some dumb math. I divided the profits. So you said over a trillion dollars of profit for 650 people. I divided that up by 50 states. That's $20 billion per state. Each of those people on average, each of those individual people on average, could give $150 million each person to each state. This is insanity. That's more yeah, money than no, any. I mean, we could, we, we, could, we could end homelessness, we could end poverty, we could end hunger in the United States if, if we didn't, if, you know, if we ended money hoarding, essentially. Chris, thank you. Thank you. Spot on. Uh, you know, along these are similar points to my opening rant, as it were, which you can also find on Twitter and uh, over at buzzflash.com. There's a pile of other stuff here that I, I just want to bounce off you and, you know, uh, after the break, I'll pick up your phone calls and your thoughts on these issues, because these are, this is real stuff. I mean, this is America right now. This is, this is the America that the Republican Party's hard turn to the right in the 1960s through the 1980s, and then the Democratic Party's hard turn to the right in 1992 as a result of the Republican Party killing the unions. I mean, Bill Clinton honestly had a problem in 91 when he was planning on running for president. The unions could no longer fund a presidential run. They just didn't have the money. Reagan saw to that. And so where was he going to get the money to become president? I mean, you know, there wasn't an Internet at that time. I mean, there sort of was, but it was CompuServe and AOL. You couldn't, you know, use it for massive fundraising stuff. So what do you do? Well, you know, him and Al Fromm took the Democratic Leadership Council, which had been created in 1985 by Democrats who were horrified with the Great Society, Lyndon Johnson's programs, and, you know, the Civil Rights Act. A lot of these guys were Dixiecrats who started the DLC, so-called conservative Democrats. You know what that means. And, you know, Bill Clinton and Al Fromm basically took over the DLC, reinvented it. Now we call it the third way or the New Democrats and said, you know, we'll become the Democrats who take money from corporations. We'll compete with the Republicans on the same, you know, we're going to level the playing field. He had no choice. The Internet didn't become really a thing that could be used to raise fund, you know, to raise money until the mid-2000s. And Obama wrote it to the White House. But, you know, this is what happened. So now we've got this hard right party in the Republican Party, and the result of this is that the Republican Party has basically merged into the traditional hard right in America, which we have always known as the Klan, as the Nazis. I mean, they had a bunch of different names in the South, you know, the, 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 the People's Republic. There, there, there were a bunch of groups in the South. Lamar Waldron could fill you in on all this. He's a real scholar of this stuff or somebody from the Southern Poverty Law Center. But, you know, here we are. And what does it produce? Well, here we go. This headline from uh, Travis Geddes over in Raw Story this morning. The headline, pro-Trump shadow group is targeting officials for assassination in a tangible step toward terrorism. Uh, a pro-Trump group has called for the assassination of Chris Krebs, the former director of cybersecurity and the information security agency at the federal government, and others who they say stole the election. This is from a statement by, um, it says Walden said, it, it doesn't identify who Walden is. We became aware tonight that a shadow group has launched a campaign on a website called Enemies of the People proposing the assassination of various Republican and Democratic leaders who they falsely claim are complicit in manipulating the 2020 presidential election. Now, Krebs, the guy who used to work in the federal government to make sure that we had the most, you know, he's the one who said we had, we just had the most secure election in history. For that, Donald Trump fired him, and now they're targeting him for assassination, literally. He has sued the Trump campaign and its attorney, Joe Deneva, DeGeneva, who publicly came out and said Krebs should, quote, be taken out and at dawn and shot. 
And now they're targeting Brad Raffsenperger, the Republican Secretary of State in Georgia. Trump, on Thanksgiving Day, said, I understand the Secretary of State is really, really an enemy of the people. Well, that was the phrase Stalin used whenever he identified somebody to be assassinated or to be taken, you know, or to be imprisoned and executed by the state. Literally. I'm reading um, uh, From Russia with Love right now by Ian Fleming, the novel. Somebody recommended it to me on Twitter, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. I've never read any of those novels. I love the movies. And it's amazing. It's just an amazing book. Ian, Ian, you know, I, think, I always thought Ian Fleming was a hack writer. This is really good. But anyway, so here we are, you know, the enemy of the state rhetoric that was, that was big in Russia back in the day. Uh, election officials in Georgia, Michigan, and Pennsylvania now have had explicit, identifiable assassination threats headed toward them. Here in the Pacific Northwest, in Washington State, a man walked into the headquarters of the Democratic Party for the state. This, this was in uh, Spokane, I believe. And yeah, in, in Spokane County Democrats. And he said, quote, I don't want to hurt you, but I do have a bomb. Please read this manifesto and share it widely. And then he started a fire inside the Democratic Party headquarters for the state, which did significant damage while they were waiting for the police to come get this guy who said he had a bomb and he was going to blow them up. I mean, this is what the Republicans have brought us to. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Steve in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, Steve, it says here you disagree with me and that I'm a lunatic. So you go to the front of the line. Please, let's be specific and have a rational conversation here. What specifically did I say that you think is loony? All right, all right. I'll be, I'll be nice, Tom. So here's the deal. I typically don't dial into your, dial into your station, but I've been finding you, and uh, I've been enjoying listening, but I will tell you everything that you talked about in your rant this morning Every single thing you mentioned in your opening dialogue and your rant completely off base. Let's talk about the 91% tax tax rate on the wealthy and the rich, okay? First of all, you know you know that is not possible. You know for an absolute fact that if you were to do that, you would increase poverty in this country at rates we've never even seen. Okay? The reality is if those tax rates were real at one time, okay, real and you're talking to somebody that was a Democrat, lifelong, entire life, okay? You're talking to somebody that was so poor growing up. You know, I know what it's like to be on welfare. We were on welfare, all right? We had our lights shut off. I did all of that. And if it wasn't for some wealthy people, I would have never been given a chance. So your 91% is delusional, okay? Should some of the wealthy people... Okay, Steve, let's, let's, let's just take that for a minute. You know, I gave you all You're the space on. you wanted. And yeah, I, I grew up in, in similar circumstances. We used to go to, we called it the cheese store. We, 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 we would go to the surplus food store that, the, that Lansing had, you know. Yeah, you know, I'm familiar. Yes, there was a 91% income tax. It was imposed by Franklin Roosevelt, either in the late 1930s or early 1940s. It had been earlier imposed by Woodrow Wilson to pay for World War I. It got blown up by Warren Harding in 1920 when he dropped it from 91% down to 25%. Franklin Roosevelt raised it back up to 91%. It was 91% throughout the last half of the FDR presidency, through the entirety of the Truman presidency, through the entirety of Republican Eisenhower presidency, and Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon both repeatedly defended it. You can look this up. It was 91% throughout the Kennedy presidency. Lyndon Johnson in 1967 dropped it down to 74%. And it stood there until the second year of Reagan's presidency or the end of the first year of Reagan's presidency when he dropped it down to 50% and then two years later dropped it down to 25%. And that is the reason why when, you know, I don't know how old you are, Steve, but when I was a kid in the 50s and 60s, that was the reason why back then, when the top income tax rate was 91%, and that top tax rate didn't kick in until you made about $3 million in today's money. That is why the average CEO in America in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and the first half of the 80s took a maximum of 30 times what their lowest paid employee took. Because if you took more than 30 times what your lowest paid employee took, you started paying a 91% tax rate, which is crazy. And as a result of that, the federal government 
Number one, we didn't have an explosion of a few people, you know, 650 billionaires we have right now. We didn't have any billionaires as a result of that. We did have a lot of very wealthy people, number one. And number two, the federal government had enough money for Dwight Eisenhower to build the interstate highway system, for Dwight Eisenhower to build new schools literally in every community in America. I went to one that was built in 1956. Uh, it was a brand new school when I went to first grade. We put a man on the moon. We built infrastructure. Most of our roads and our bridges were built during that era. We built America. When Reagan dropped that top tax rate down, two things happened. Rich people started getting really rich, and working people actually saw their wages start going down radically. And, and, and a third thing is it began the disintegration of America's infrastructure. I challenge you to disprove anything I just said. I can back up all of that, and so could you with a quick Google search. That's fine. I don't need to do a Google search. So first of all, back when those tax rates were in place, let's think about it. The cost of living was much, much less. Today, would we have Elon Musk? Would Elon Musk be in place where he is today doing some of the wonderful things that he's doing if he had a 91% tax rate? The answer is no, he would not. Yes. And you want to talk about the wealth? Yes. No, Steve, hang on just a second. Let's let's just differentiate. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on just a second, Steve. Please, let's Let let's be just be rational here. You're, you you're mixing up apples and oranges. I'm not, not. you know, Elon back back well. in the 60s and you know, let me just make a point, please, and, and uh, to your point, right. please. Go ahead. Elon Musk, you know, back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, the Rockefeller family was still worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And People were today. still, you know, the, the Henry, the Ford family still owned hundreds of millions of dollars, probably in today's money, billions of dollars in the Ford Motor Company. But the CEO of the Ford Motor Company, Henry Ford Jr. or whatever is Edsel Ford, never took a salary more than a million dollars because he didn't want to pay a top tax rate. Elon Musk would still be a billionaire today because of his assets. His stock would still be worth billions. But he would not be able to write himself a paycheck today for more than three or four or five million dollars a year without hitting a 91 percent tax rate, which would be crazy, which means that he'd have more money in the company that he could pay his employees. I'm not saying that we should prevent people from accumulating wealth. I'm not saying that we should prevent people from building businesses or owning stock. I'm saying that when somebody when a, when a person who owns a company and I went through this in the 70s, I owned a company. We got a contract. We had an herbal tea company. And one year we had a contract that, that made us a pile of money. We had 18 employees. And my partner, Terry O'Connor, and I started taking so much money out of the company that our, our bookkeeper and my dad sat down with us and said, you guys are about to pay a 50% income tax rate this year. That's insane. Cut back on your pay and put the money into the company, which we did. And we grew the company even more. That's what I'm suggesting, Steve. Well, first of all, I get what you're suggesting, but it will not work, and it's going to be detrimental. First of all, it'll never happen, because even your own Democratic Party that you're in love with, the progressives, as far left as you go, they won't even agree with it. You talk to some of the, some of the wealthiest you're people right on this that. earth are Democrats. They're Democrats. Warren Buffett, Democrat. Oprah Winfrey, Democrat. LeBron James, Democrat. I can go on and on and on. I'm talking about, you know, you claim in your rant that the Republicans, and by the way, you're talking to a guy that grew up his entire life as a Democrat. My family, my mother and father, or stepfather, because I grew up, I would have made the top 10 episodes of the Jerry Springer show. So Steve, I, never I, went to door, I went door to door for Barry Goldwater, I mean, in 64. Let, you know, let's leave the biography the aside deal. and argue Here's the, the facts here so we can have an enlightening we'll conversation for our listeners. We'll argue the facts. The reality is taxing wealthy people this is, is history. okay. I don't care about history. You're 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 bringing it up as history. If you re if you go back and listen to the tape on what you said, you're advocating for that stuff to happen again. Is what you're advocating? Yes. You're advocating yes. to get rid of the Supreme Court in some way or change it. You're no, no, I'm not. I'm not. Wealthy. We're talking about taxes right now, Steve. And during the, are, the decades, the decades of the '50s, '60s, and '70s, that 30-year period, we averaged 3.2 percent, I believe, as, as I recall, 3.2 percent GDP per year, or average over each one of those three decades, which was the greatest growth in the history of the United States. It all came crashing down when. Reagan dropped that top tax rate. Okay, so here's my question. What? And I, by the way, when I was 19, I was homeless. I had nothing. I lived in the basement on my girlfriend's parents' couch till I could. Good on you for for right. lifting yourself no, up on. by your bootstraps. But hang on. So yeah, that's Wisconsin for you. We we work harder here in about three days than most of America does in two months. But here's the deal. Here's what God I will tell you. you. Okay. 
you tell me why it's so dangerous and so bad and so evil for people to become wealthy and have a lot of wealth. What's so bad about that? I didn't say it's bad for people to become evil, so as I pointed out. You know, the Rockefellers were so still terrible? rich. The... Fine. What's so terrible? What about I'm saying is that when what I'm saying is that when a small number of people extract large amounts of cash out of an active and moving economy, it slows down the economy. It also makes less cash available for companies to grow and for workers to, to see pay raises. And that, that Reagan tax cut is why we still have a $7.25 an hour minimum wage. Really? And that's why China, the wealthiest people in China and the Chinese government, that's why they're paying their people 10 cents an hour, 20 cents an hour, a buck an hour to do work. If that theory is accurate, that's another why topic, is that working Steve. in China? No, it isn't because they, China does have a very high tax rate on their wealthiest people. Most of China's billionaires are are not taking billions in pay. They're billionaires because, like yeah. with our example of Elon Musk, they are stockholders in companies that they started. Sure. And how much freedom do they have? And how much pursuit of happiness and liberty? Well, I'm do not they suggesting have? America should become China. I mean, you know, if you want an well, example, it's a better example. Pick Denmark. We're heading there. Just or Germany. Or France. There. Just. Just the coronavirus stuff we're no, heading we're there. All of this stuff we're heading. No, yes, we're we not. are. We're absolutely heading towards. Steve, the, you know, republic. rhetorical generalizations like that, you know, don't don't serve any good purpose. It, well, the problem you know, call is again with specifics, with and I mean, I'm more than happy to argue specifics with you. Like we just, you know, it was a very good conversation for five or six minutes Thank here you. about taxes. Thank you. Thank and by you the way, I'll that. call back in a few weeks. And by the way, your listeners probably learned something from me today. Thank you. I believe you're right. I believe you're right. And, you know, our, 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 our policy is you get one call a week. So, Steve, I look forward to your next one. Thank you. And thanks for, for a rational conversation. I honestly really Hartman. value that. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. That was more like the kind of conversations I used to have with my dad. I, I, Steve, you're great. Thank you. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. And on the line with us is Laura Packard. Laura is a healthcare advocate and the founder of Healthcare Voices, which is a nonprofit organization that works with adults with serious medical conditions. The co chair of the Healthcare Voter Group and runs the Pharma Accountability Campaign for the Hero Action Fund, also a cancer survivor. Healthcarevoter.org is the website, the Twitter handle L Packard or Healthcare Voice, or Healthcare Voter, your choice. Laura, welcome to the program. I know that the Affordable Care Act enrollment period is coming to a close, and you know, the kind of the main topic we wanted to talk with you about. Tell us about this. Sure, well, in most states, the deadline is December 15th, which is Tuesday, but in every state, if you want a policy that starts on January 1st, you should sign up now and you can start at healthcare.gov to see what your options are. Now, I understand that the Trump administration has thrown some roadblocks in the way of people signing up for the Affordable Care Act. I've seen various stories over the course of the last four years, frankly, and I confess I don't remember all the details. It seems like they were messing with the website, like they zero funded the promotion or reduced the funding for promotion of these things. What's the situation with the state exchanges and the ability to sign up for the ACA? You're exactly right. For the federal exchange, which is what the administration controls, at first they cut down the Sunday hours of the first year and they slashed the marketing budgets. So that means that many people are not aware that they can get a cheap or even a $0 plan because the Trump administration was not able to destroy the Affordable Care Act via Congress. Instead, they've been going after it with a thousand cuts here and there. And even in the midst of a pandemic, they're still trying to take away the Affordable Care Act. It's going to the Supreme Court next year. But for right now, it exists. It is in action. And people should go to healthcare.gov to see what policies are available. Yeah. And at the state level, what's happening? Because these programs are administered by the states, aren't they? If you go to healthcare.gov, don't you get rerouted ultimately to a state portal, as it were? It depends. Some states, like I live in Colorado, and so we have a state portal. So if you go to healthcare.gov, it will send you to a Colorado exchange. 
Most states don't have a state exchange, but some do. And states that have their own exchange, like Colorado, like California, like some others, they may have a later deadline for signing up. But you should start at healthcare.gov and it will route you to the right place if you live in a state that has a state exchange. And some states set up their own exchanges to mitigate some of the attacks coming from the administration. But we'll have to see what next year looks like because next year we're going to have somebody in office that supports health care instead of trying to take it away. Yeah. And I think most people don't even realize, I mean, everybody gets it right now who watches any television at all that if you're over 65, you now qualify for one of these scam programs called Medicare Advantage for privatized health insurance. You have to surrender your Medicare and in many ways surrender your right to Medicare in the future to buy into one of these Medicare Advantage plans. There is just a screaming disaster for so many people. But they offer $0 plans. Everybody knows that. You just mentioned $0 plans for the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act is heavily regulated by the federal government and you don't generally get scammed. They can't dump you or cut you off or do what's called lemon dropping or cherry picking with the Affordable Care Act. Am I right on that? Right. And before the Affordable Care Act was in place, insurers used to do something called rescission, where if you ever had something serious happen to you, you got sick, had a terrible accident, they would have their lawyers go through your insurance plan with a fine tooth comb and figure out that you didn't report that you had acne in high school or whatever. It was worth it to them to have lawyers figure out how to deny you your insurance coverage. But the Affordable Care Act put protections in place to make Make sure that everybody can get insurance and can keep insurance. And it's by no means perfect. There are plenty of people that make just a little bit too much money to get help, but still health insurance is out of financial reach. But everyone can get access to a plan through the Affordable Care Act. Insurers, they can't refuse to cover you like they used to be able to do. And as a stage four cancer survivor, no insurance company would ever choose to cover me if they didn't have to. Yeah. And then Trump rolled out this thing called Trump Care. Under the Affordable Care Act, there is a provision that if you lose your job and you had health care through your job, you basically had two choices. You could use COBRA to continue that health care plan, or you could sign up for up to 90 days, as I recall, and please correct me if I'm wrong in any of the details of this, mm-hmm. that you could sign up for 90 days for a short-term, basically emergency plan that would cover mm-hmm. you know, just a crisis, a car accident or something. But those emergency plans, those short-term plans, they were a lot cheaper than COBRA, but they also were not under the Affordable Care Act, they were not covered by all the provisions of the Affordable Care Act. So if you got sick in certain ways that involved things like pre-existing conditions, they could drop you or refuse to pay for part of it. They could have all kinds of you know wild exceptions and exemptions. And Trump extended that 90-day period to, what, several years now? And, you know, I've had people call into this program saying, I just got offered a Trump care program for only $112 a month, and it covers millions of dollars worth of... And, and I'm like, you don't want that. Can, can you speak to that? Sure. Well, they extended it out to a year. But a year. there's... Yeah, you should not sign up for one of those short-term plans if you can get good health insurance because, again, they can choose to cancel your policy. They don't have to cover essential health benefits and so on. There aren't the regulations on those plans. So they look cheap on the surface, but if anything ever happened to you, they might not cover you at all. And so that's why if you do lose your health insurance through losing your job, that is a qualifying event to be able to sign up for insurance through the Affordable Care Act no matter when it happens. Open enrollment ends in most states December 15th, but losing your job and losing your health insurance qualifies you, just like moving, and there's some other events that also qualify you to go back onto the exchanges. So always read the fine print. If it looks like an incredible deal, there's reasons for that. Yeah, exactly, like with Medicare Advantage. So just recap for people, when the Affordable Care Act enrollment period closes and what people need to do. Okay, Uh, different states have different deadlines, but just to be safe, go to healthcare.gov 
on or before December 15th, which is Tuesday, and get started and look at your options. And even if you've looked in the past and it wasn't affordable, check it out today and you may be surprised. Yeah, great. Thank you very much. Laura Packard, a healthcare advocate. Healthcarevoter.org is the website and the Twitter handle, as well as L Packard, P A C K A R D. Laura, thanks so much for dropping by. It's great talking with you. Thank you. My pleasure. It's the Tom Hartman program, the place where despair is not an option. We will get through this, my friends. We will get through this. And uh, welcome to Tom Hartman University, our club. Today we're reading from Ralph Nader's Breaking Through Power. It's easier than we think. This is from page 74, the chapter, How the System is Rigged. According to Russell Mokaber, editor of the Corporate Crime Reporter, quote, corporate crime takes far more lives, causes far more injuries and diseases, and steals far more money than street crime. But the vast amount of law enforcement resources, mass media attention, and prison cell blocks are devoted only to street crime. Just consider these preventable casualties. Almost 60,000 annual workplace-related fatalities from both disease and trauma. 54,000 deaths a year from air pollution. Over 100,000 lives lost as a result of medical malpractice. Nearly 100,000 lives lost from hospital-induced infections. Over 100,000 fatalities from adverse effects of drugs. And over 40,000 deaths every year due to inadequate or no health care coverage for diagnosis, treatment, and medication. There are far larger numbers of sicknesses and injuries attached to these data sets. These statistics have haunting human faces. Children, women, men, and families destroyed by uncontrollable, monetized minds. Whether they are caused by recklessness, criminal negligence, or worse, the key factors in common are the preventability of such pain and the suffering inflicted from commercially induced neglect, predation, manslaughter, and homicide. By comparison, street and home homicides do not exceed 14,000 lives lost annually. Now see how companies have made sure they have the laws that they need to go after you and how they make sure that the law can be used as their punisher. The giant multi-tiered home mortgage business, now driven by the same one percenters who profited from crashing the economy in 2008, can nail you if you misrepresent information on your mortgage application. Suppose you say you're going to occupy your house as a principal residence to get a lower interest rate and down payment, and you don't for some reason. Lenders can call the loan and demand repayment if the mortgage balance is outstanding. Absent that payment, the lender can seize your home, foreclosure. In addition, by claiming you committed bank fraud, these companies can use the FBI against you. As the veteran housing columnist Kenneth R. Harvey warned, this can tr trigger severe financial penalties, prosecution, and prison time for ordinary Americans. But how many bankers feel the cold metal of handcuffs tighten on their wrists when their crimes rob American families of their homes and life savings? Health insurance companies have similar supporting laws to deny medical coverage by alleging illegal activities. This could mean anything from non-disclosure of traffic violations to gun accidents, even when there has been no conviction. It could mean something as vague as hazardous behavior, according to the New York Times. If a company paid you and comes back for their money, they can get you prosecuted for fraud. These corporate goliaths are too big to fail, and they know how to enact laws to make sure that you are too small to stop them. Corporate state culture, the plutocracy boom oligarchy, is given an astonishing exoneration, so long as it claims the violence and mayhem are not their direct purpose, but an unfortunate byproduct that just couldn't be helped. Like when innocent people are accidentally killed by U.S. drone attacks, the government seems to quietly get a free pass. It's almost as if corporations get away with a permanent defense of an institutional insanity, a defense going global in terms of deadly supply chains, from horrific African mines to dangerous factories in China, in India, and Bangladesh. Deoxygenation and poisoning of the vast oceans, estuaries, rivers, and lakes. Popping greenhouse gases into rapid climate destabilization. Extending the range of infectious diseases due to habitat and ecological disruption and desecration. And changing the nature of nature itself through unregulated genetic engineering and nanotechnology. Even with 6 million slow, agonizing deaths a year globally attributed to the tobacco business, cigarettes are still demonically promoted by one percenters who reap staggering profits from selling their addictive and poisonous product, especially in developing nations where regulations protecting children do not exist. 
excuses forever that corporatists have no intention, knowledge, or reason to do harmful things. The institutional insanity defense again. Or the manufacturers of weapons of mass destruction, whose militant advertisements say they are just helping the national defense, but are not at all responsible for their products' use in the coercive policies of empire and perpetual war. Is it institutional madness or infantilism? Did the World War II allies let the giant Krupp works in Germany get away with this excuse after the war ended? It's time for people to take away these rationalizations of omnicide from corporations that demand they be legally privileged as persons for their pursuit of profits, but not as persons for our pursuit of them as criminal predators and refugees from justice. In the 2012 U.S. presidential campaign, Republican nominee Mitt Romney asked about corporate personhood, replied that it was a given, saying, hey, corporations are people, my friend, like it was a science fact he learned in fifth grade. This is no mere throwaway line. Billions of dollars of litigating, advertising, marketing, and corporatist commentary have been focused on driving this people image into our minds from childhood. Regularly, full-page ads show that Goliath corporations like Walmart or Lockheed Martin are just people like you. The ads are filled with pictures and names of the faithful workers who bring you goods and services. The book by Ralph Nader, Breaking Through Power. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 